It was another gloomy day. A boring day. A day of Netflix and Tiger King and using washcloths instead of toilet paper because I didn't keep up my year supply. That's gross. I love it. That's right. Another day of quarantine on planet Earth. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! That tiny little coronavirus, it killed a lot of people, and it completely killed my client base. I'm Rank McBadden, Faith Detective. I search for clues that allow people to keep believing what they want to believe, and it's hard to do that through WebExes and Zoom alone. Being a Faith Detective relies on social interaction, not social distancing. But today, I was lucky. Today, I got a message from an old friend, practical friend, a critically thinking friend. I don't believe in God. A friend who loves science. I believe in science. And hates faith almost as much as he hates homeless people and kittens. I don't know why you always have to be judging me because I only believe in science. But most of all, he hates injustice, which is why he came to me, Rank McBadden, faith detective, in search of karma. I'm wondering if, if you subscribe to any form of karma whatsoever, because obviously justice is a big part of my, I don't know, what I find extremely important or valuable. And if I'm going to drop the whole notion that there's some sort of like eternal justice, like if you're an asshole in this life, then you die, then you get your comeuppance after this life. Like the afterlife will be a punishment to the, you know, the fact that you're a dickhead in this life. Okay, well, if I have to drop that notion, which is where I stand. Because I only believe in science. Then I kind of fall into, okay, well, what, what will fill that void now? And I, I find myself thinking about karma quite a bit. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on karma. Infants on Thrones, the philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 631 An Insatiable Need for Justice and the Meandering Search for Karma, Part 1. Yes, another multi part series that starts with a simple question from our good friend Tom and turns into an exploration of Hinduism, reincarnation, near-death experiences, and the value of forgiveness. One of these things is not like the other things. One of these things just doesn't belong. Huh? What does forgiveness have to do with any of these things? Well, stick around. We'll get to it. But today, you're going to hear some back-and-forth conversations between Tom and myself a special appearance from my special friend Cammy, and then an episode on Hinduism created by a special listener, Drew, that was first published in December 2016. And hey, I know a lot of you listeners like to talk back to these recordings when you're listening. Some of you even send me emails from time to time. So why not record your questions or comments about today's episode and email that to me? It's really easy to do with that voice memos app on your phone. It's what Tom and I did back and forth to each other for the first 20 minutes or so of today's episode. So if you have something you'd like to say, say it. 
send it to me, and maybe it will be included as part of this series. What do you think about justice? What do you think about karma? Come be part of the conversation. Record yourself and email it to infantsonthrones at gmail.com. And now, with no further ado, take it away, Tom. What's been vexing you lately, buddy? Hello, ladies. Look at your man. Now back to me. Now back at your man. Now back to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped using ladies' scented body wash and became a Patreon subscriber of Infants on Thrones, he could smell like he's me. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast and the effort that goes into creating it, please come support us on Patreon, where for as little as $1 per episode, capped at any amount of your choosing, you will have access to nearly 100 Patreon-only sharing time episodes that have not been released to the general public, or if you would prefer to express your gratitude with a one-time donation via Venmo or PayPal, check out the donate link on the website infantsonthrones.com. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Hey, Glenn, what's up, buddy? How the hell are you? How are you holding up in all this craziness, man? I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, you know, it's, it's weird because I really don't know what's harder to deal with right now. The, like, well, it's complicated. It's, it's, it's a test of stress, I think. It's a test of your mental fortitude to sort of grind through all this. Just, uh, don't like it. Yeah, it's, it's, this is all a test of our mortal, uh, mental fortitude. See if we can handle this kind of stress. Um, the uncertainty of all of this is causing people to really spiral. And it, it, I guess in a way it's, it's almost a good thing, you know, that, and I don't know how you feel about it, but I actually feel very, very fortunate that I've sort of done a lot of the mental groundwork to be able to sort of zen myself through, not totally, and I'm not trying to be a braggart or anything like that, but I, I totally can handle this sort of thing pretty well. Um, but like there's, there's really close friends of mine that are not able and not built to handle the uncertainty of where we're at in the world. They're just like, what the fuck, man? Like, are we even gonna have jobs after this? Or, and they're just freaking out. So, um, I wanted to, I wanted to run something by you because I thoroughly enjoy our back and forth. Some, you know, uh, when, when you have a contrary opposing view or whatever, and, or an opinion, so I want to run this by you in maybe the hopes that maybe there's uh, points of uh, conversation that we can have. Because it's something that, that I've been thinking about quite a bit. And some of it is in light of what's going on in the world today and some of it's not. Some of it's an ongoing fascination or obsession that I've had forever, like with the justice, forgiveness stuff. Um, it's about karma. And I know that you kind of have a much more nuanced view about, you know, um, and I, please, I don't want to sound disparaging about it, about the interconnectedness and, you know, that life and the, we're all some s s connected or whatever. But I'm wondering if, if you subscribe to any form of karma whatsoever. Because obviously justice is a big part of my, I don't know, 
my makeup, not my makeup, but um, what, I, what I find extremely important or valuable. And if I'm going to drop the whole notion that there's some sort of like eternal justice, like if you're, if you're an asshole in this life, then you die, then you get your comeuppance after this life. Like the afterlife will be a punishment to the, you know, the fact that you are a dickhead in this life. Okay, well, if I have to drop that notion, which is where I stand, then I then I kind of fall into okay. Well, wh what will fill that void now? And I I find myself thinking about karma quite a bit. And there's a lot of people that actually do believe in some form of karma. And whether it's sort of the universally sort the universe sort of balancing itself out, if you believe in that sort of thing, or if it's and I, I hate to even kind of pull in the law of attraction sort of thing, but if you, if, uh, if you're an asshole, then, you know, assholery is going to sort of surround you. So in a way that sort of falls under the definition of karma. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on karma in general, whether you subscribe to it, whether you have any thoughts about it. Um, and I don't know if, if Cammy's around, I'd be curious if she has any thoughts on it as well. But I, I want so badly, and, and I do a decent amount of research reading into karma, different, different people's belief in karma, what, what that means, but it's so slippery and there's so many different um, belief systems or structures around it that it makes it really, really difficult. And the biggest um, downvote, <laughs> I guess, in internet terms, the biggest uh, criticism against karma I see is that there are a lot of people who are bad or, you know, fit in the category assholes or whatever. There are a lot of those people that just skate free and they have a f amazing, wonderful life. Uh, and it doesn't seem like their comeuppance comes around. And I look at that and I look at those individuals as sort of the evidence against karma but you know there's always that sort of uh asterisk at the back end of that like well tom do you really know that their life is that wonderful do you th do you really think that they haven't gone through some sort of karmic justice in some way shape or form maybe it's an emotional karmic justice or uh, a financial karmic justice or a, a mental karmic justice or maybe they're fighting some sort of mental uh mental illness that you don't see or whatever like oh, all right all right maybe maybe there's some truth to some of that that i can't see but it's hard it's hard for me to subscribe to things that i don't see or know when it's easier to see like oh man that's freaking that person's living the dream and is an asshole to everybody around them and that's that sucks anyway uh, again, I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, and you don't need to respond to this because I'm sure that you've got a lot going on. I just wanted to touch base with you and let you know I'm thinking about you and I really care about you. Uh, so take care of yourself, man. We'll talk to you later. Um, what an awesome message. Thank you for that. The, the last thing you said to me was, you know, you, you don't have to respond because you're probably really busy. I am so the opposite of that. Like, I, <laughs> I, 
Oh, I'm so not busy right now, and it's getting to me. But but it's also kind of like I'm just really not motivated to do anything. Like Cammy and I have been laying around a lot watching TV. Like we burned through. I, I watched Lost again. She'd never seen it before. So we burned through that in probably a week. I don't know. And we've just we just keep finding new shows to watch. Like there's there's one right now that um, it's called Little Fires Everywhere with Reese Witherspoon. Um, <laughs> a lot of the series we've been watching, frankly, have been Reese Witherspoon series. There's another one called The Morning Show. Um, that's an Apple TV, Apple Plus. Uh, Reese Witherspoon and. Uh, Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell and um, it's kind of like the Me Too movement, Matt Lauer it's really interesting it's really really interesting kind of like the Matt Lauer story, unofficially um, and uh, anyway but yeah we're, we're just like laying around, not really doing very much um, I uh as I as and I love your question about karma uh, and and also the about people who how do you deal with uncertainty if you don't have the mental fortitude or you haven't developed that skill of living with uncertainty like I, I like the way that you talked about kind of doing some heavy lifting so you're a little more prepared for uncertainty than many of your friends. And I was wondering if you wanted to do like a, a a panel discussion around the questions of karma and how to deal with uncertainty. I'd be up for that. I think the first thing when you're talking about karma is defining it. Like, what do you mean when you're talking about karma? Are you talking about like reincarnation where you, you do something bad in a previous life and so you've got to pay for it in the next life or... You know, like Joseph Smith's version of that was that the level of intelligence that you are raised to in this life continues with you in the next one. And um, whether that next one is another mortal probation, as there are multiple mortal probations according to some scant Mormon doctrines or what it is on the path to becoming a godhood with eternal progression... Um, I think there's there's some elements of karma in that idea, but but all of those things um, rely on a on on time being linear, and I don't believe that time is linear. I I, I believe that what we experience as linear time is a is a result of uh, I don't know like the fabric of the cosmos that we're living in, if that makes sense. You know, Einstein's theory of relativity. I, I don't know if you've ever watched those um, Brian Greene Nova um, Fabric of the Universe series. There's four of them. And, man, they're so cool. And, and what, what I love about them are the visuals that, that he uses to, to get some of these really complicated ideas across about how time and space are connected. And, like, moving through one impacts your movement through the other. Um, so I, I, th- I think the idea of karma, like many, like most, probably all ideas and stories that we tell each other 
are fundamentally flawed because they're based on incomplete information. We just aren't wired to receive all of the data that we need to process and figure out what the fuck is really going on with all of this. So we make guesses and assumptions and, you know, the, the word karma itself simply means um, to act or, or action. And so in some senses in Hindu culture, when people would talk about, oh, that thing is your karma, they're basically saying it's a, that that's a consequence of something that you've done. And of course, there's also that school of thought that has taken the idea of karma into more metaphysical, uh, you know, the, the woo-woo reincarnation kind of karma. And there, there's that story in the Bible, remember, where the, the, they asked Jesus, why was the blind man born blind? Was it punishment that he did in a previous life or something before he was born or something now? And, you know, the, the answer was it's just for God to demonstrate his power in the here and now. So it was kind of a comment on karma <laughs> in whatever version that was. But, but I, I just, I don't, I don't, I do believe that the energy that makes us up, we've talked about this many times, continues. And so in a sense, I don't even know who the I would be if I'm saying I have lived other lives before. I, I, if, if we're defining I as the Dow Glenn Oslin that was born in 1972, no, I've, that, that I only exists once and never will again. But is there a, like an energetic spiritual eye behind that, like a soul? Yeah, I think there is a soul, but that soul isn't the same thing as Dow Glenn Ostlin II. It's the thing that made it. It's, it's the big old massive pile of cosmic energy that came together to do that. And, and, does it all the time and is also part of the what's doing Tom Perry and part of what's doing Matt Long and part of what's doing all of us you know we're all connected that way and I don't I don't feel like that's a metaphysical woo-woo kind of thing until you start talking about what does that actually mean or how does it look but I think it's pretty scientifically sound to say that the the the, the energy that makes us all is a is one energy it's this one energy field that we're all a part of and connected to and created from. But, the, but how karma plays into that would, would need some kind of a linear, first you live like this, and then you live like this, and then you live like this, and because you did this, then you did that. And I just don't think that there's like a linear progression. I think basically everything is all happening at once and influencing, like everything's influencing everything else. And then you also throw in, you know, there is, there is a degree of agency and choice that you can make in the way that you respond to certain things and then that's going to impact what influences everybody else and in that sense we're all co-creating together based on our thoughts and our beliefs and our actions and our responses and all of this stuff and the karma of that is what is, what is my little slice of responsibility for what I've done, for what my action is. And if you're talking about law of attraction, I, 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 w- I would say with law of attraction, it's kind of like Legos, where 
you know, if you have a, a, a Lego with like three prongs, like three male prongs, then it goes with a Lego that has three female prongs, you know, or whatever. So it's kind of like a front and a back, an up and a down. It's puzzle pieces that fit together that have the shape contoured in that way, you know, that, that likeness. That's, that's what the like like attracts like. It's also like every, every predator needs a victim. You know, you don't have the predators that are out preying on other predators. The, the like attracts like there is the whole process of um, abuse. <laughs> so that the abuse is the whole and you need the abuser and you need the abused in order to have it. So what role does karma play in that? The, the karma of the abuser is the karma of, the, of being abused. What, what is it that puts somebody into that position where they're open to abuse, they're vulnerable to abuse, they're susceptible to abuse, and, and anybody could play that role at any time, and, and ditto for the abuser. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep thinking about karma. If, if you have other questions about karma, you can ask me and push it back, and I think that that's just one of the stories, traditions that has popped up for people to try to make meaning of the world around them and it's not completely correct because it doesn't have complete information and nothing that we none of these stories that we tell ourselves have that which makes them all what Tom what did you just say fictions hey all of them man all of them it doesn't mean they're not real it doesn't mean they don't count it just means that they aren't complete how's that does that help with the fictions get us closer together so, all right, man. Hey, I just arrived. Cool. I'm hiking at the wave cave today. Talk to you later, bro. This is karma's gonna get you. Gonna knock you right on the head. How about now? No. Well, no, I can't. But it's all dark in there. Well, it's ambient lighting is what it is. I used to take ambience. <laughs> That's the kind of lighting that would put me to sleep. That makes hey, sense. so since you've been grinding on shows, I've been grinding. Yeah, I can't. I gotta ask because I haven't been able to find anybody to talk about this movie. Uh, did you like Big Lebowski? I can't remember. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I'm not like a super fan of Big Lebowski, but um, you got, I got to be in the right mood for it. Okay. How well, about you? Well, yeah, it's one of my all-time favorites. Okay, well, I'll geek out on it with you. I love it. Well, that's well. I just wasn't sure how you felt about it, so I didn't really want to overcommit. <laughs> I don't want you to think I was stupid for liking the Big Lebowski. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. No, the the precursor to why I ask is because there's the spinoff movie that just. Came oh yeah, out. yeah. I saw the trailer for it with the. Uh, oh, is it Angel or no Jesus? Yep. Jesus. The, the Jesus. The Jesus. John Hamm's in it, right? Yep, John Hamm's did you, in it. Did you see the movie or just the trailer for yeah, it? Yeah, I watched the movie. I can't imagine that it's very good. It's terrible. Yeah, and it looked kind of terrible. The IMDb is really I bad. thought it was terrible before you said it, but I wanted to make sure uh, you thought it was terrible too. I didn't want you to think I was dumb if you well, thought so the, it. Well, so, but the thing is, is like I've been dying to talk to people about it because there's they took some some risks in this thing that I seriously can't understand what was going on. Like there's some pretty graphic threesomes in this thing. Really? 
yeah, it just comes out of left field. <laughs> like a couple times, I'm like, what what is going on? Yeah, it's it's weird. Tell but... me more about these graphics. <laughs> oh but there are some things that i have you're talking about like like a team a bowling team of three right three people bowling no like sexual threesomes so so jesus and his friend which i can't remember his name and then there's this girl and it's they're kind of the main characters oh so it's two guys and one girl threesome right so that's not that's not my favorite kind of threesome song (laughs) Mine either. <laughs> but uh, I like you know, it better than the three guy threesome. But <laughs> you know, everybody's got their own. That's just mine. Yeah, to each their own. You yeah. Know? Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so there's like a scene where Jesus is like sitting on the same bed as his buddy and these girls going after it, and then he like gets stage fright. And he's like, "Oh, I'll finish her up or whatever." It's weird. It's weird. Mm. But uh, there are some scenes in this movie that are just absolutely incredible. Because if you remember in the Big Lebowski, yeah, where he, you know the few licking little, the bowling ball, yeah. But he also does the woo all the time. That's like his trademark, <laughs> and he does it in the movie all the time. And that was that made me so happy. That was my favorite. So. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't been I haven't been able to find anybody that's even seen it. Like, oh, okay. You can yeah. actually rent Jesus Rolls for a dollar on Amazon. <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna though. <laughs> I, I watched the trailer for free. Uh, <laughs> so why would you watch the movie for? Yeah, no. I mean, when I saw the trailer, I'm like, yeah, no. Yeah. No. no. Yeah, Cammy's like, why are we watching this trailer? And I'm like, it was in the Big Lebowski. I don't think she's. I don't know if she's seen it. I have. Oh, you have seen Big Lebowski? Do you like it? Yeah, she thinks it's okay. Do you want to come say hi to Tom? Hey, Tom. Hey, Cam. She's just saying it from down there. She's not going to actually come up and see your face. I don't blame her. Yeah. He says he doesn't blame you for not wanting to come up and see his face. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hey, what's up, Cammie? Hey, how's it going? That's pretty good. Now, what did you want to ask Cammie about? I I didn't play it for, for Cammie yet. I told her about it, but I was driving out to go hiking when I listened to your message earlier today but why don't you summarize it right now <laughs> try to summarize it yeah. what do you have any uh, have any beliefs or thoughts on karma do you think it's a real thing do you think it ha- if it's related to anything like the law of attraction or anything like that that's a really good question if it's related to the law of attraction or not i i don't think that time really exists outside of our own realities in this like in a linear yeah way like the way that we perceive it here and so i think that um there may be something about karma but i don't think that we completely understand like about karma like um the way that a lot of people see karma or understand karma it's like okay if i do something shitty in this life then it's going to affect me in my next life but my thoughts are that time is not linear. It just, it's ha- everything's happening simultaneously. So if you have multiple lives, they're happening all at the same time, instead of like one leading to another kind of thing. That hmm. thought. What do you think, Tom? Yeah. What, what's your why, why are you interested in karma all of a sudden? Well, it's my ongoing obsession about justice and stuff. And oh. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to a point where, 
I'm starting to entertain different ideas because my incessant need for justice, I feel like I need to fill that void with something. And so karma's been bubbling up to the top because I have a, a friend of mine who's a Hindu. Hey, Ganesha, want a peanut? Please do not offer my God a peanut. Thank you. Come again. And so he's been telling me some of the background and the backstory to where karma comes in relation to Hinduism. And it's really interesting, but just the more simplistic definition of karma, where what comes around goes around sort of thing. Yeah. I really, 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 really want to believe that. I do believe that. I've I've noticed that a lot in my own life that just kind of things balance out. My whole thing is balance. It's like finding balance, my balance in who I am every day. Like I am a good person because I like how that feels. I like helping people. I like how that feels for me, but I do kind of believe Tom that there is justice in some, some way. Like I personally have this belief that, like say Hitler. I mean, we always use Hitler as a as an example for probably one of the worst humans on this. Right. I want to welcome you and your friends to Germany. We are not so different, you and I. I mean, we've both got cool style, you know. So that's cool. So say Hitler dies. I think that you know, in order to whatever progress or whatever, like he has to face all the pain that he caused in some sort of way. And I don't think in terms of like hell, but maybe, um, cause I think hell is really living on this earth, you know, but. Um, so he has to face it in the afterlife. <laughs> what are you laughing about, Glenn? <laughs> yeah, what I, are I've, you got, I've got my own little thing going on inside my head right now. It's not, <laughs> it's not, I'm not mocking anybody. You both like doing moves? Yeah. Okay. Gotta have to take my word for it. I'll, we'll get to it. Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. And killing people. I love it. You clearly do too. And that's cool. Anyway, I, yeah, I, I feel like it's not in a, like a, uh, like, you know, facing it in the way where you get punished, but facing it in the way where you have to, you feel the other person's feelings. Like you feel their pain that they had say for instance like Chrissy Johnson like her dad when he dies my thoughts are in order to kind of move forward move on or whatever like he will have to face the pain that he caused to whomever he caused it to this is this is beyond this the current life right this is the idea is that after they move on or whatever right in order I, I think that you know for me, I just see kind of like levels and it's like, <laughs> I always refer it to like playing a video game. It's like in order to make it to the next level, you have to, you know, get all these gems or whatever. No. But um, I, I've had personal experiences with that. And so I kind of feel like um, that when people are wanting to maybe be open their eyes more, be more aware and kind of, I don't know if I can explain it, but I've had personal experiences with that where I feel like once you pass, like if you haven't been able to make amends and and forgive and um, take responsibility for the things that you did to hurt other people that 
it's it's given to you you have that choice afterwards how do you how do you square the notion of the idea that there's a lot of assholes in this life that seem to have a good life anyway oh yeah that happens a lot look at trump you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think trump is like the epitome of an asshole that's a millionaire right and have you ever seen him before he became president when he was talking about his himself or his money he was very very like passionate about it and he just puts a lot of energy into it and and i think that he's really good at certain things and i think he's really poor at other things you know and i think that there are people that are big assholes like trump and i could name a couple others that i have in my mind that (laughs) you know financially but they struggle in like the relationship side of it things or they struggle in humanity side of things yeah that's where i get this is that this is where it gets difficult for me because even if they struggle with relationships wherever it's like they're that come up um, that come up and isn't that doesn't, that doesn't square out the scales you know it's I like oh you've got a few bumps in the road did you i think it you got a, i do okay i really do i hope you're right i i just i i've been squaring it away in my head because I don't know, man. I'm I'm really struggling with the personal hell that they end up in. Maybe. I don't know. Imagine like facing like if you're somebody like Hitler, like facing all this pain from all these people. Join me. We could be brothers. We are so alike. It's almost like we finish each other's balls. Yeah, I know. Here's I don't what, think it. I I think. And this is why I laughed earlier. Um, okay. Because I, I, and I, I don't really. I think that there's a, an incredible amount of concentration that has to go into creating a person or a personality, um, and that the after after the death process, if there's if if there is any kind of like spirit or soul or something which i think there probably is there there is a returning of like whatever whatever's going on right now that's creating me returns back to that like oneness of everything and there is kind of like this process of letting go and and facing the things that you did as you were glenn osland or tom perry or adolf hitler and part of part of that is the record as you're going back into the one you're recognizing that everybody that you ever did any shitty thing to was also another version of that one it is also another version of you. And so like for Hitler, the reason I laughed is because I was thinking Hitler would experience what each one of those victims experienced because he was in that sense. And that there's like some kind of a coming to understanding as, as before you're really able to, um, let go of a sense of identity that that's the only way that i can like make any sense of it if there is anything like that at all but i i also i liked what uh, what matt said on your conversation don't f with cats when you were talking about uh abusers in that um you, you look at an abuser and what do you see you see somebody who was abused you see somebody who had all that shit happen 
to them. I thought that was a really interesting conversation. Another way to look at it as as well. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know, dude. Like the the pie in the sky thoughts is what where it kind of loses me. Where you have to take several leaps of myopic beliefs to get to this to feed the the hunger or the thirst that i have to have uh justice the scales of justice to be weighed out that's what that's what drives me crazy i have to believe one that we pass through this life into something else and like if we take the adolf hitler thing where he (laughs) he he's he understands or you know comes to terms with all the people that he killed um yeah there's like 14 steps i gotta take before i get there and that's what's difficult for me because that i'm like yeah or he died and he doesn't have to face any of that shit and that's sucks but how how would you design it to have your desire for justice satiated to your satisfaction I think it'd have to be done in this life somehow. <laughs> I mean, if I, if I could somehow construct some form of afterlife, sure. Then, then the wheels are off. I used to love the Mormon idea where you'd go up to the judgment of God or the judgment bar of God and he'd pull the DVD player up and say, all right, let's, mm. let's see this. Let's, let's, let's see what 14 year old Tom was doing right around this age. We know. you don't need the video for that (laughs) that's why i always like that idea because you you know you're getting played back all your good bad things that were going in your life and you get to go through the remorse and the guilt and all the waves of emotions and then all of a sudden you're like okay and then you come to terms with it then he's like well you know it looks like you repented and you can come forward or you know what you just didn't do enough and you still sucked and you didn't know all the handshakes that you promised you'd remember so you go to (laughs) you go back to spiritual hell what what if instead of uh a dvd player to to replay your life it, they, like the technology in the afterworld is way more advanced than what we have now and it's <laughs> kind of like like a virtual reality thing where you put on goggles and you're actually reliving it not only from the pers- your perspective but then you could do anybody else's perspective you know i guess Apu, I see you're not in church. Oh, but I am. I have a shrine to Ganesha, the god of worldly wisdom, located in the employee lounge. Hey, Ganesha, want a peanut? Please do not offer my god a peanut. (laughs) This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. No offense, Apu, but when they were handing out religions, you must have been out taking a whiz. Mr. Simpson, please pay for your purchases and get out and come again. Boy, everyone is stupid except me. Hello, Infants on Thrones listeners. My name is Drew, and I'll be your host for today's episode. So, about two years ago, I started studying Hinduism pretty intensively, and I've become absolutely fascinated by it. 
When compared to the Western religions like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Hinduism presents a very different paradigm to make sense of the universe and our place within it. At the same time, I've come to find a lot of surprising parallels between Hinduism and Christianity, particularly the Catholic version of Christianity, and these similarities have really intrigued me as well. So, I've been thinking that maybe other ex-Mormons like me might be interested in learning more about all this, and so I asked Glenn if I could do an Infants episode to talk about all the interesting stuff I've been learning about Hinduism, and he gave me the thumbs up, so here we are. So when I was thinking of the title for this episode, the first one that popped in my mind was something like, everything you ever wanted to know about Hinduism but were afraid to ask. I'm really original like that. Um, But then it occurred to me that, you know, probably most people actually aren't interested in learning about Hinduism because most, if not all of us, were raised in a culturally and religiously imperialistic system that implicitly taught us that there was really nothing noteworthy that we enlightened Christian Westerners could learn from the darker-skinned heathens of Asia. What I mean by that is that I'm assuming that the overwhelming majority of Infants on Thrones listeners, like me, were raised in Western Christian societies and schools, and I don't know about you, but what I remember about my K-12 through education is that we learned a lot about Europe, you know, like the ancient Greeks and Romans and the Crusades and the Middle Ages and later about the British, French, Spanish, Italians, and Germans, but we were taught next to nothing about the great civilizations on the other side of the world. In fact, I think the first mention of China in my history classes was when Marco Polo brought noodles back to Italy, and I don't remember being taught anything about India except maybe that the British colonized them for a while because they really liked their tea and spices. And you know, I don't think that this Eurocentrism in my K-12 education was an accident. I think it was a lingering vestige of Western cultural and religious imperialism. The Christian Europeans looked down on the Indian people as these darker-skinned heathens who stood in need of being civilized by the West and saved by Christianity. The British colonial masters loved India's natural resources, but they didn't really see anything praiseworthy about India's religion, philosophy, culture, or history. To the colonists, it was not Britain that had something to learn from India, but rather, it was India that stood in need of learning from Britain. Well, as far as I can tell, that way of thinking was still alive and well in Western academia when I went through school because I was taught so little about the major civilizations in Asia, like India and China. And my guess is that most of us graduated from high school without having the slightest clue about how fascinating and rich India's culture and religious heritage is because, well, none of our teachers bothered to tell us about it. And so for these reasons, I thought perhaps a more fitting title for this episode would be Everything you never wanted to know about Hinduism and didn't care to ask. So let me ask you something right at the beginning here. What do you think of when you hear the word Hinduism? What images, ideas, or personalities come to mind? Just taking a guess here, I imagine you might be thinking of statues of various gods with lots of arms or maybe an elephant head. Or maybe yoga comes to mind. Or maybe you're thinking of a famous Hindu like Gandhi or Apu from The Simpsons. Maybe you're imagining people with a red dot on their forehead. Or maybe the word karma comes to mind or the word mantra. Maybe you thought of meditation or the caste system. For most of my life, that pretty much summed up my limited understanding of Hinduism. And if that describes you as well, I think you'll have a much broader and deeper understanding and appreciation of Hinduism by the end of this episode. But I can already hear a few skeptics out there thinking... 
Well, why should I be interested in an episode about Hinduism? I mean, we all know that religion is just a bunch of man-made bullshit, so can't we just get back to dissecting and making fun of Mormonism? Well, to those skeptics out there, allow me to suggest just a few reasons to be curious about Hinduism. Reason number one, India is projected to become the most populous country in the world in the year 2022. And I don't know about you, but I'm curious to learn about the country that will soon be the most populous in the world. And if you want to understand India, you have to understand Hinduism. Reason number two, Hinduism is the oldest living religion in the world, and even if we assume that all religion is man-made, I think studying the oldest surviving religion in the world can teach us a lot about the human species that created it, and may actually contribute valuable insights for navigating the human condition. Reason number three, and this is something that I personally find attractive about Hinduism, Hinduism is much more compatible with modern science than the Western religions. In fact, when it comes to cosmology, in some ways Hinduism was way ahead of its time. I'll explain more about that later, but just trust me on that one for now. Reason number four. As I've already mentioned, there are huge surprising parallels between Hinduism and Christianity. In fact, I think you'll be surprised and fascinated to learn how Hindu Christianity is. And last but not least... Remember when the Beatles were totally famous and were smoking lots of weed and doing lots of magic mushrooms and LSD? Well, do you remember where they went to find spiritual enlightenment? That's right, India. And we all know that John, Paul, George, and Ringo can't be wrong. So are you guys with me on this? All right, let's dive in and get started. One of the central questions that the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita address is the question of whether there's anything permanent or eternal in the universe. When we look around us, we see change everywhere. A plant sprouts, grows, decays, and dies. Seasons come and go. People are born, they grow up, then they grow old, and their bodies start to break down, and eventually they die. Everything that rises seems to fall. Even the mountains gradually erode. And so in this world of ours, it seems as if everything is constantly changing, that nothing is permanent, and nothing lives forever. So one of the central questions that the authors of the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita were concerned with was this question of whether there's anything permanent or eternal in the universe. And in their search for an answer to this question, they seem to have taken a line of reasoning that was similar to one taken by some of the ancient Greek philosophers, the atomists. The Greek atomists observed that everything can be broken down into smaller and smaller bits. Boulders can be smashed into rocks, rocks can be smashed into pebbles, pebbles can be smashed into sand, sand can be smashed into dust, and dust can be smashed until it becomes so fine that it's practically invisible and it floats in the air. Now, from this observable fact, the Greek atomist reasoned that everything must therefore be made of particles that are so small we can't see them with the naked eye. And they coined a term for these theoretical particles. They called them atoms. Well, as we now know, 2,500 years later, modern science confirmed the reasoning of the Greek atomists. 
The authors of the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita seem to have engaged in a similar line of reasoning, but they didn't end at particles like the Greek atomists did, and here's why. Particles have a form. And the ancient Hindu philosophers observed that every form we see around us eventually breaks down and gets destroyed. And so they reasoned that if there is anything permanent or eternal in the universe, it would not have a form. It would not be a particle. It would have to be something formless. And they realized that all of the forms we see in the universe and in the world around us, all the matter that we see, it must have arisen from this eternal, formless something. Well, as it turns out, like the Greek atomists, these ancient Hindu philosophers were way ahead of their time. As modern scientists now tell us, there is an eternal, formless something that gave rise to all the matter we find in the universe. Energy. Modern scientists tell us that energy cannot be created or destroyed. That means energy is eternal. And modern scientists also tell us that all matter consists of energy. So all the matter in the universe, the galaxies full of stars and planets, the features of our own planet like the land and the oceans, all the various plants and animals, all the matter that we see, all the forms that we find in the universe, it all consists of eternal energy. So as it turns out, the Hindu, uh, these ancient Hindu philosophers who wrote the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, they hit the bullseye. There is an eternal, formless something that gave rise to all the matter, all the forms that we find in the universe. The ancient Hindus had a name for this eternal, formless something. They called it Brahman. Brahman comes from the root word burh, which means to expand. So the word Brahman means something like expanse. They envision Brahman as an eternal, formless expanse, like a great cosmic energy field from which all the matter, from which all the forms that we see in the universe have arisen. It is impossible to overstate the impact that this concept of Brahman had on Hinduism. It provided a way to drastically reinterpret Hinduism in a way that made it more of a monotheistic religion than a polytheistic one. And here's how. Brahman came to be regarded as what you might call the most high god of Hinduism, or you might say the one and only uppercase G god. All of the lowercase g Hindu gods who had human-like bodies, the gods of fire, water, the moon, the sun, etc., all of those lowercase g gods came to be regarded as incarnations of the one and only formless uppercase g god, Brahman. This is similar to the later Christian idea that there's a formless god the father who was later reincarnated, or not in, reincarnated, but incarnated as Jesus. For this reason, some Hindus bristle at the suggestion that Hinduism is a polytheistic religion. They consider that suggestion to be inaccurate. They consider themselves to be monotheists who worship one uppercase G god, Brahman. And they, worship, and they worship the formless Brahman by worshiping one or more of the various embodied personal lowercase g gods, all of whom are regarded to be incarnations of Brahman. This is similar to the later Christian idea that the formless God the Father can be worshipped by worshipping his incarnation in the person of Jesus Christ. 
As one famous Hindu scholar explained, the uppercase G god of Hinduism, Brahman, is not a person but a principle. The principle that there is one great formless cosmic expanse from which everything has arisen and to which everything will return. And that impersonal formless uppercase G god of Brahman can be worshipped in the personal form of Vishnu or Shiva or Krishna or Jesus, or any other deity or saint. A little fun fact here, many Hindus regard Jesus as an incarnation of Brahman, and so worshipping Jesus is an acceptable way to worship Brahman. It's worth mentioning here that Hinduism and Christianity are the only living religions that have this concept of God incarnate, the idea that God can take on, that, that, that a formless impersonal God can take on a personal human form. And because Hinduism predates Christianity, I'll let you guess which of those two religions have that idea first. Now, there's something important to note here. If, as the Hindus say, everything we see is a temporary physical form of Brahman, then we don't need to have faith in Brahman because we can see Brahman. Brahman is a God we can see all around us. From the Hindu perspective, every time you see a flower or a tree or a river or a mountain or the stars or another human being or whenever you look in the mirror, you are looking at one of Brahman's temporary forms. So let's look at the implications of this idea that everything and everyone is just a temporary form of the eternal formless Brahman. Well, if each of us is a temporary form of Brahman, then that means that we too are lowercase g gods. We too are incarnations of Brahman. This is strikingly similar to something Jesus later said, quote, ye are gods and children of the Most High. In other words, you could say that from this Hindu perspective, each of us is a piece of Brahman. And the Hindus have a term for that piece of Brahman that is within each of us, and that term is Atman, A-T-M-A-N. When Brahman is embodied in a human form, the piece of Brahman within that person is called the Atman. You could liken the Atman to the idea of an eternal spirit or soul, but there's a big difference between the Western idea of the soul and the Hindu concept of Atman. In the Western religions, your soul belongs to you. Your soul is you. And your soul is totally different and separate from God. But in Hinduism, the Atman within you, that piece of Brahman, it doesn't belong to you. And it isn't different or separate from Brahman. The Atman within you is Brahman. It is God. In the Western religions, the soul is something that every person has, and it's theirs to keep forever. But in Hinduism, the Atman is something that Brahman, God, is just temporarily loaning you. And the only thing about you now that will exist forever is the Atman within you, that piece of Brahman within you. Everything else about you, your body, your mind, your thoughts and feelings, your needs and desires, your memories, your personality... All of that will one day vanish, and the only thing that will be left is the Atman within you, that piece of Brahman inside you. This is one of the central ideas found in the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, that your true eternal identity is Brahman. You are a piece of God, that formless eternal expanse that has 
taken on a temporary human material form. You are not your body. You are not your thoughts. You are not your memories. You are not your needs and desires. You are not your personality. All of those things are temporary. They change over time, and one day they'll no longer exist. They say your true eternal identity is Brahman. So here's probably a good place to tell you something else about Brahman that I haven't mentioned yet. You see, Hindu philosophers hit the bullseye when they reason that there must be an eternal formless something that gave rise to all the matter, all the temporary forms we see in the universe. We've discussed how compatible that is with modern science's conclusion that all of the matter in the universe consists of energy that cannot be created or destroyed, which means it's eternal. But the Hindu philosophers went a step further than modern scientists are willing to go. The ancient Hindus reasoned that the eternal formless expanse of Brahman must also be conscious. In fact, they'd say that Brahman is consciousness itself. And here's why they came to that conclusion. The ancient Hindus reasoned that if A produces B, or if you say it the other way around, if B comes from A, then whatever qualities or characteristics you find in B must also exist in A. So applying that reasoning to humankind, their their reasoning went something like this. Humans came from Brahman. Brahmins, uh, excuse me, humans came from Brahman. Humans are conscious. Therefore, the source of humans, Brahman, must be conscious as well, because a conscious thing cannot come from an unconscious thing. Now, needless to say, this is still a hotly debated topic in philosophy, and modern science is not ready to jump on board with it, because we don't have any empirical evidence confirming the idea that eternal energy, that the eternal energy that makes up the universe is conscious. But hopefully... That at least helps you understand why the ancient Hindus came to the conclusion that Brahman, the eternal energy of the universe, must be conscious as well. And there's another interesting parallel here between Hinduism and the Old Testament. Think back to the story of when Moses saw the burning bush and asked God what his name was. And the burning bush answered, I am. And then later, I am that I am. If you asked consciousness what its name is, what better response could there be than I am, or I am that I am? Consciousness, self-awareness, I am. So turning back to the, the concept of Atman, that piece of Brahman within each of us, Hindus believe that the Atman within us is your consciousness. So the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita teach us You are not your body, you are not your thoughts, you are not your needs and desires, you are not your memories, you are not your personality. All of that changes over time and is temporary. All of that will vanish one day. There is only one thing about you that doesn't change throughout your whole life. That there is something within you observing it all. Observing your body, observing your thoughts, observing your feelings of need and desire and pleasure and pain, observing your memories... That silent observer within you is pure awareness, pure consciousness, and that is the Atman. That is the piece of Brahman within you. Compare yourself at age 5 to yourself at age 50. Between age 5 and age 50, your body will have drastically changed, 
your thoughts will have changed, your desires and memories and personality will have all changed, but there will be one thing that has remained constant through it all. Every day of your life, from the time you were an infant until the moment of your death, there is a consciousness within you that is aware of all your perceptions and experiences. And that consciousness within you, that is the Atman. So in summary, Brahman is believed to be an eternal, formless expanse of consciousness from which all the matter and forms in the universe have arisen. And there is a piece of this eternal conscious Brahman within you that they call the Atman. And the Atman is your consciousness. And that is your true eternal identity. You are not the thinker of your thoughts. You are the consciousness within you that is aware of those thoughts. You are not the body that feels pain. You are the consciousness within you that perceives the pain. For those of you familiar with Buddhism and mindfulness meditation, this will all sound very familiar to you. And that's not surprising because Buddhism evolved from Hinduism. So here's just one little example of how this concept of Atman is reflected still today in everyday life in Hindu society. When Hindus greet each other, they typically press the palms of their hands together at chest level and say, Namaste. Namaste literally means, I bow to you. And what that's understood to mean is something like, I reverence the divinity within you, the Atman. So when Hindus greet each other like that, it's a recognition of each other's true eternal identity, that they are all one, that they are all Brahman. So with an understanding from the, of these concepts of Brahman and Atman, we're ready to talk about the purpose of life from the perspective of Vedanta, this major school of Hinduism we've been talking about. In short, the purpose of your life is to realize your true eternal identity. And when they say realize, they don't mean realizing it at a purely intellectual level. They're using the word realize in its deepest, fullest sense, meaning to become real. To fully realize your true eternal identity as Brahman, that means you reflect that understanding of your identity in all your thoughts, words, and actions. That means you stop thinking of yourself as a separate individual. Instead, view yourself and everyone and every, everything else as one great whole, Brahman. You stop seeing your fellow man as a competitor or an enemy, and instead regard everyone as a different manifestation of your true, shared, eternal self. Brahman. You see everything around you, the trees, the sky, the animals, fish, mountains, rivers, sun, moon, the stars. You see all of it as being one and the same as you. It's all Brahman. It is all this eternal conscious energy that has taken on these temporary material forms. We see again here how harmonious Hinduism is with modern science. Carl Sagan said that we humans are the universe contemplating itself. We are one with what we look up at and see in the night sky, or when we look out over a scenic vista or whatever we see wherever we are. We are all part of one great cosmic energy field. We are all Brahman. Similarly, in the Chandogya Upanishad, there is a dialogue where a father teaches this principle to his son. The father points out the rivers, the seas, the trees, and everything around them, and repeatedly tells his son, You are that. You are that. Everything and everyone is a temporary material form of Brahman. As you can imagine, this concept of Brahman had uh, it has profound 
ethical implications. If we were to truly see ourselves as one with everything and everyone around us, we would treat everyone and everything with respect, reverence, gratitude, gentleness, kindness, and patience. We would do unto others as we would have others do unto us. We would take care of the planet, and we would only take what we need. I think it's worth noting here how in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' ultimate prayer was that we would all be one. It seems one thing the ancients realized was that our sense of separateness, our sense of individuality, creates competition. That competition then results in inequality and violence. And so it seems the ancients realized that the only way to cure the ills that afflicted human society was to replace our individual sense of separateness with a sense of oneness and unity. Needless to say, that's much easier said than done. Well, my friends, what I've just summarized for you, these concepts of Brahman and Atman and realizing your true eternal identity, these are the central ideas in the version of Hinduism we've been discussing called Vedanta, which again means the essence of the Hindu scriptures. So now that we've covered the philosophical essence of Hindu scripture, let's talk about spiritual practice. What do Hindus do to achieve their goal of realizing their true eternal identity. There are four main approaches, four main paths, and these are called yogas. Yoga comes from the Sanskrit word uh, root, which is yug, which means uh, union and so or unite. And so a yoga is something that is designed to achieve union. And in particular here, what we're talking about is union between your, the Atman within you and Brahman. And so there are these four yogas, these four main approaches, these four main paths that you can take as a Hindu to arrive at the destination of self-realization of your true eternal identity. Um, you can think of these four different paths as the four points of a compass, you know, north, south, east, and west, like a compass which consists of two axes with opposite points on the end. There are two sets of opposite paths you can take toward the goal of self-realization. So I'll talk about what these four main paths are, these four yogas. The first one is called bhakti, and bhakti means devotion or love or worship. So on the path of bhakti, what you do is you choose a deity, or you can choose uh, more than one deity, from the pantheon of personal lowercase g gods, and you worship Brahman in the form of that god. You can choose to worship Vishnu, or Shiva, or Krishna, or Ram, or Ganesh, or Sita, or Saraswati, or Lakshmi, or Parvati, or Kali, or even Jesus. And by doing that, you are worshiping the uppercase G god, Brahman, through those various incarnations of Brahman. So, let's talk about what that worship consists of specifically. In Hinduism, there are two main places where the gods are worshipped. One is in a temple, and the other one is in your own home. In every temple, there is a sanctum, a, a holy of holies, where an image of one or more gods is placed. And that image is usually a statue, but sometimes it's a painting or even a photograph. When Hindus enter a temple, it's typical for them to salute the image of the god by pressing their palms together and holding them in front of their chest or up, up at the level of their forehead. It's also common them, for them to kneel and touch their forehead to the ground. Then they may sit and think about the god while praying, uh, you know, and looking at its image. 
they may chant the name of that god or recite mantras uh, as they're standing or kneeling or sitting before it. And then they often make offerings to that god, usually in the form of flowers and fruit. Now, I should be clear about something here. Hindus do not believe that the statue or painting that they are uh, worshiping, you know, in front of is literally that god. They know that statues are just statues, that they're just stone or clay or wood. Now, the, the more modern, reformed Hindus... They regard these statues as mere symbols of mythical gods, but the more traditional literalist Hindus believe that these statues are earthly tabernacles that the spirit of that god can come and inhabit, you know, just come and temporarily dwell in that statue during the worship ceremony. It's not, you know, incredibly different from the Mormon concept that... Uh, you know, God needed a tabernacle on earth to dwell, so Mormons build temples so that the Spirit of God can come in and inhabit that uh, temple because, you know, everywhere else is too impure for God. So it's, you know, similar to that idea. In the typical worship ceremony, uh, it's conducted by a priest, and this ceremony, the typical ceremony, is called a puja. And the priest performs various rituals to purify himself, to purify the area where he's worshiping, to purify all the instruments that are used in the worship ceremony. And this is done by a combination of things, by sprinkling holy water, by saying prayers, by making uh, sacred signs with your hands and arms, uh, also by dipping a finger in water and then drawing certain geometric shapes on the ground with that water. For example, a square or a circle or a triangle. Uh, they also burn incense and uh, they anoint flowers with perfumed oils and place them on the instruments of worship. And, and they also, you know, will typically anoint the image of the god with aromatic oils. So once the area of worship and the instruments of worship and the worshiper have all been purified, the spirit of the god um, that that image represents is then invited to come and dwell within that image that's been made and prepared for it. And the worship will then, the worshiper will then pray to the God whose spirit is thought to be dwelling in that image. And the worshiper will then make offerings of fruit and flowers to that God and pray to that God. And, um, Sometimes, you know, food like like a meal, like a full meal will be offered to the god. And spoiler alert here, the god doesn't eat it. So what they do with the food after the ceremony is that they uh, they give that food to someone. And that's, you know, kind of considered an honor. And they eat that as like a sacrament. So, um, you know, it's kind of like the... Uh, it, it's kind of like the deacons eating the, the, the leftover bread after sacrament. All right, um, so this same sort of worship that takes place in Hindu temples can also take place at home. Devout Hindus usually have a shrine in their home where one or more gods is displayed, and there they can pray to and make offerings to their to those gods in their home. Now, uh, going back to this, so this is all part of the bhakti path. This is this is you know the how you conduct worship, and the whole point of the bhakti path is to help you develop love and devotion to God. And ideally, developing love and devotion to God helps you develop love and devotion to your fellow human beings, towards animals, towards the earth, and everything else. So this bhakti path is seen as one of the main four spiritual paths that can help you in coming to deeply realize your true eternal identity as Brahman and to realize that we are all one. 
Standing on the opposite end of the axis from bhakti is the path of jnan, and jnan means knowledge. On the path of knowledge, the spiritual aspirant seeks God through study and reasoning. The path of knowledge mainly consists of learning how to identify and see through the numerous layers of illusion that obscure our true eternal identity as Brahman. These layers of illusion are called maya. One of the most common illusions is our tendency to think that we are our body, or oftentimes we root our self-concept in our mind. We think, when we think of who we are, we tend to think of our mind. You know, our, our self-concept is often rooted in, in our brain, in our mind, or in our body. We also tend to think of ourselves as being separate individuals rather than uh, parts of one great unified whole. And according to Hinduism, that is the grand illusion, is this our sense of separateness, our sense of Id- individuality, our ego, when in reality we're all just temporary material forms of the one great formless eternal whole, Brahman. So the path of knowledge lar- largely consists of studying, reasoning, discussing, and contemplating religious texts especially the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita that discuss the core concept of Brahman and Atman and your your true eternal identity. One could say that the path of bhakti, of, of love, devotion, and worship, is the path of the heart, while the path of jnana, the path of knowledge, is the path of the head. So on one end of the axis you have bhakti, the path of love, devotion, and worship, And on the other end of the axis, you have Nyan, the path of knowledge and study. But both are intended to lead you to the same goal, to a complete realization of your true eternal identity as Brahman. So we've discussed the two paths on the ends of one of the axes of the compass. Let's talk about the other two paths on the other ends of the other axis. So on uh, on the other axis, at one end, you have the path of karma. The word karma comes from the word uh, kri, which means action. And a common understanding of what karma means is, you know, the old expression, what goes around comes around. That whatever you do is eventually going to come back and either, you know, help you or hurt you. You know, a more precise way of thinking about it is simply the law of cause and effect. Actions have consequences. So on the path of karma... Your, you know, the, the karma yoga, as they call it, your goal is to perform actions that will bring about good consequences for others and for yourself. And that consists of everything from small random acts of kindness to strangers to major humanitarian service projects, you know, helping people when they're in need. And the idea here is that by walking the path of karma, by serving your fellow human beings and animals and taking care of the earth, by doing unto others what you would have others do unto you, you will in time come to more fully realize your true eternal identity as Brahman. On the other end of the axis is the path of Jhan. That's spelled D-H-Y-A-N. It means meditation. The path of karma is a beehive of activity. Uh, by contrast, the path of Dhyan is sitting in silence, in meditation and contemplation. The path of karma is very focused on the external world. By contrast, the path of Dhyan takes place in the interior world within you. The path of karma is concerned with what's outside you. The path of Dhyan is concerned with helping you discover what's inside you. Through meditation, you still your body and still your mind with the goal of getting in tune with the Atman, that pure consciousness within you, that peace of Brahman, that peace of God inside you. 
From the Hindu point of view, God is always very, very close to you. God is always inside you. So meditation is the practice of going within yourself to find and experience God as the pure consciousness within you. So those are the four main spiritual paths of Vedanta, that this version of or school of Hinduism we've been talking about. So those four yogas, those four spiritual paths again are bhakti, the path of love, devotion, and worship, jnana, the path of knowledge, karma, the path of action, of good deeds, and dhyan, the path of meditation. At the risk of stating the obvious, these paths are not mutually exclusive. Nobody says you have to pick only one of them. In fact, it's encouraged that you take all four of these paths simultaneously, that you develop a personal spiritual practice that involves all four of these approaches. At the same time, it's recognized that we all tend to have what you might call spiritual personalities. For some people, the path of bhakti comes very naturally. But for those who are more academically or philosophically inclined, the path of jnana might appeal to them more. And of course, some of us are extroverts and others of us are introverts. So some people may you know, love involving themselves in the beehive of activity on the path of karma, while others may prefer solitude and silence and meditation. There's no such thing as one true way to do spiritual practice in Hinduism. It's more personal than that. You're free to develop your own combination of spiritual practices that work best for you. And if you wish, you can seek the assistance of a guru. A guru just means mentor or teacher. But all four of these paths that we've discussed, despite their differences in methodology, they're all intended to lead you to the same destination, to self-realization, to realizing your true eternal identity as Brahman in your thoughts, your words, and your actions. Now, there's another spiritual path within some schools of Hinduism, and it's called the left-hand path. And although it's somewhat controversial and it isn't universally accepted, I thought it was at least worth mentioning just because it's interesting. The left-hand path is a spiritual path where you fully indulge all of your lusts. You go hog-wild with lots of crazy sex with as many uh, sexual partners as you can find. You participate in orgies. You partake of intoxicating beverages and substances, whatever you want. And the reason why some Hindus consider this a viable spiritual path is that it's believed that if you indulge your lust long enough, eventually it's all going to get old. It will naturally become unsatisfying, and that will cause you to realize that there is no eternal lasting satisfaction in satisfying your, your lust, and that will cause you to seek out some deeper, more permanent or eternal meaning in your life, to find something worth living for that goes beyond the satisfaction of your lusts. And of course, it's assumed that the something that you'll seek out is God. So it is said that the left-hand path is a dangerous path, but it's a valid one. Okay, so as a Hindu, you have the opportunity to choose between two main lifestyles. You can choose the monastic lifestyle, the life of monks and nuns, or you can choose the householder lifestyle, the life of getting married and raising children. And both of these lifestyles are approved of within Hinduism, and neither of them is considered to be superior to the other. If you become a Hindu monk or nun, your lifestyle will be very similar to Catholic monks and nuns. You take vows of celibacy and poverty, and instead of marrying, getting a job, and raising children, you spend your life in study, worship, and service. 
If you choose the householder path, there is an option uh, later in life to take the monastic path. But that cannot be done until after you have fulfilled all your duties to your family. After your children are out of the house, after you've retired, if you wish, you can leave behind all your possessions to your spouse and family and go away into the wilderness or into a monastery or a temple or something and spend the rest of your life in study and meditation the way a monk would do. And this is you know, kind of seen as a, as a way to prepare for death in, in the last uh, stage of your life. Another thing you can do, um, as I mentioned earlier, if you so choose, is to get a guru to help you in your spiritual practice. And guru, it, it means mentor or teacher. But this is optional. Nobody requires you to do it. And if you do decide to get a guru, it's recommended that you look for three criteria in that person. Number one, you, you want it to be someone who has years of study and practice and knowledge and experience, you know, someone who knows what they're talking about. The second thing that you're encouraged to look for is make sure that the guru walks the walk, that he or she lives by the principles he or she teaches. And number three uh, is that the guru must impart his or her teachings for free. There are plenty of phony gurus who treat religion like a business, so these are guidelines to help you avoid being duped by someone like that. So how does a guru become a guru? Well, the answer to that is that a guru becomes a guru when a disciple asks him to be his or her guru. Gurus are not uh, are not made gurus by some religious institution. And gurus can't appoint themselves to be gurus. Disciples make gurus. So, you know, gurus have no authority other than the fact that their disciples believe they are knowledgeable and because uh, their disciples have chosen to rely on the guru's guidance. And um, I'm reminded of the passage in the New Testament when, when there's a multitude that hears Jesus speaking and answering questions, and the people said among themselves, he speaks as one having authority, and they decided to follow Jesus. That's a very typical guru-disciple relationship. You encounter someone that seems to have some special insights about spiritual life, and then you ask that person to be your guru, and you, you rely on them for guidance in your spiritual life. And uh, if, if the person you ask accepts, then that person becomes your guru and you become that person's disciple. So what does a guru do? Well, a guru is there to answer your questions, um, particularly questions about Hindu scripture and spiritual practices. Your guru is meant to be your guide, your helper. So he or she will typically recommend certain readings or certain methods of meditating or other spiritual practices. Now, the guru-disciple relationship is typically formalized in a ceremony that's called initiation. The initiation ceremony marks the beginning of the guru-disciple relationship, and the central component of the initiation ceremony is when the guru gives the disciple a mantra. And a mantra typically consists of one, or, one to four Sanskrit words. And this is interesting. And you are to keep your mantra sacred and never reveal it. And then you are to use that mantra by reciting it mentally when you meditate. So let's talk about how a Hindu becomes a Hindu. In Christianity, you become a Christian by baptism. 
In Islam, you become a Muslim by professing there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. In traditional Judaism, you're considered Jewish if your mother was Jewish. So what's the deal in Hinduism? Hinduism doesn't have anything like a baptism ceremony or a profession of faith that makes you become a Hindu. Until relatively recently, as a practical matter, all Hindus became Hindus simply by being born to Hindu parents. Hinduism was more in line with Judaism in that respect. But as Hinduism has been exported to the West over the past hundred years or so, that has raised the question of whether Westerners can become Hindus, and if so, how? And as you would imagine, there are a variety of views on that subject. Let me give you one example. There's a Hindu monastery about 15 miles from my house, and you might be surprised by what the monks who live there look like. They're all Caucasian and Hispanic. The monastic order to which they belong is headquartered in India. It's a legit Hindu organization, and yet none of the monks living at the monastery are near my home are Indians. So there are Hindu organizations that will recognize you as being Hindu, despite your not having been born into it. They consider you a Hindu based on your beliefs and how you live your life, regardless of your ethnic heritage. But some Hindus view being Hindu as more than just believing in the Hindu religion. They view being Hindu as, uh, you know, a, a more comprehensive ethnic and cultural identity that you really just have to be born and raised in. Uh, recently, I was talking to one of my Indian neighbors about this question of whether Westerners can become Hindus, and his answer was that they could maybe become half Hindus by study and belief and practice, but that they they could never be full Hindus because, again, Hinduism is more than just religion. It's, it's also an ethnicity and a culture, and you, you just have to be born and raised in it. So in the intro to this episode, I said I was going to exercise some editorial discretion and focus my discussion on the version of Hindu that I, Hinduism that I personally find the most interesting and appealing, which is also the version I know best, which is called Vedanta. This is the more philosophical version of Hinduism I've been discussing, which is very firmly rooted in the concepts of Brahman and Atman. Vedanta is one of the oldest schools within Hinduism, but it's also one of the most modernized, updated, and reformed versions. For example, most Vedantists consider the pantheon of lowercase g-gods to be metaphorical heroes rather than literal deities. They regard the worship of these mythical lowercase g-gods as symbolic of the worship of Brahman. Uh, Vedantists also do not believe in sin, uh, only ignorance sin, uh, they would say, is just actions that you take in ignorance of your true identity as Brahman. So in, in truth, they would say sin is just actually ignorance. And most Vedantists do not take the doctrine of reincarnation literally. They see it as symbolic of the numerous little mini-births and mini-deaths that each of us experience as we grow from infancy to childhood to adolescence to adulthood to old age. But I thought I should uh, say more to acknowledge the more traditional literalist versions of Hinduism that I've been kind of skipping over here. To be clear, there are versions of Hinduism that do believe the pantheon of lowercase g-gods 
are real supernatural beings. They believe that praying to these supernatural beings will bring them blessings. These gods are treated like cosmic vending machines. It's believed that if you pray to them and give them offerings of fruit and flowers and incense, that they will bring you good fortune and blessings in life. These more traditional literalist versions of Hinduism believe in all sorts of supernatural and magical things like uh, you know, gurus with with supernatural powers and other things that I just personally find to be just kind of plain superstition. Um, the more traditional literalist Hindus also support the caste system, which is something that the more modern reform versions of Hinduism have rejected. The more traditional versions of Hinduism do believe that there is such a sin, such a thing as sin. They believe there's something called Dharma, the divine law, and they believe that the degree to which you follow Dharma determines the circumstances in which you'll be reincarnated in the next life. So sin is doing something contrary to the divine law of Dharma. Some traditional Hindus believe you can be reincarnated only in human form. Others believe you can be reincarnated as an animal or an insect. And so they're very concerned about following the Dharma and keeping themselves free from sin so they can get a better reincarnation in the next life. In the more traditional literalist versions of Hinduism, they consider us all to be trapped in what's called samsara, the cycle of birth, death, and reincarnation. And the main goal of the more traditional versions of Hinduism is to attain moksha, which means liberation, liberation from the cycle of reincarnation. It's believed that those who achieve self-realization, those who fully realize their true eternal identity as Brahman, that they will not be reincarnated when they die. Instead, at the end of their lives, they will be liberated from the cycle of reincarnation, so they will not be reincarnated, and their Atman will return and be reunited with Brahman. So what do they believe it's like to become freed from the cycle of reincarnation and for their Atman to be reunited with Brahman? Hindu scripture likens it to being in a deep, dreamless sleep. And just think, every night we experience deep, dreamless sleep. And when we're in a deep, dreamless sleep, our ego is gone. We do not think of ourselves as being separate individuals. In fact, in deep, dreamless sleep, we're not even aware of our own existence. We are resting peacefully in oblivion. And to some, this might sound dreadful, but ask yourself, how do you feel when you wake up from a deep, dreamless sleep? And ask yourself, although you're not consciously aware when you're in a deep, dreamless sleep, if you were to somehow become aware, how do you think it would feel to be in a deep, dreamless sleep? Well, the Hindus have an idea of what that would be like, and they call it bliss. So being in a blissful, deep, dreamless sleep is what the Hindu scriptures say it's like when your Atman returns to Brahman, when you attain moksha, liberation, when you escape the cycle of reincarnation and your Atman returns to Brahman. It is believed that everyone will eventually, after dozens or hundreds or thousands of lives, everyone will eventually be liberated from the cycle of reincarnation and be reunited with Brahman in a blissful state like a deep, dreamless sleep. And, you know, when I first learned about this, it reminded me of a verse from the book of Revelation. And there's a passage in the book of Revelation that says in the next life, there will be no more sorrows, no more pains, no more sickness, 
no more hunger, no more suffering. And I thought, you know, that sounds a lot like what it would be like to be in a deep, dreamless sleep forever. So I mentioned in the introduction of this episode that we'd be talking about parallels between Hinduism and Christianity, particularly Catholicism. I've pointed out a few of them already, but let's take a deeper dive into that topic. And I'm I'm curious to get your feedback about a little theory I've been working on. You know, the more I've studied Hinduism, the more it seems apparent to me that Christianity and particularly Catholicism were significantly influenced by Hinduism. Christianity has some elements in it that you can't trace back to Judaism, but that you can find in Hinduism. So it seems to me, at least, that Christianity might be a fusion of elements taken from both Judaism and Hinduism. For obvious reasons, it doesn't seem Christian scholars have been very interested in researching this theory at all. But to me, some of the parallels between Hinduism and Christianity, parallels that you can't trace back to Judaism, they're so striking that I think they demand serious consideration. Now, we know that in ancient times, there was contact between India and the Middle East and between India, Greece, and Rome, you know, the southern European powers. And, for example, Alexander the Great took his army all the way from Greece to India more than 300 years before Jesus was born. So the ancient European and Middle Eastern cultures did have contact and trade with India, and this would have provided an opportunity for an exchange of ideas. So what are the main parallels between Hinduism and Christianity? As I mentioned earlier, Hinduism and Christianity are the only living religions that have a concept of God becoming incarnate. In Hinduism, the formless Most High God, Brahman, is believed to have taken on various human forms and lived on the earth numerous times. In traditional mainstream Christianity, the formless God, the Father, is believed to have come to earth in the human form of Jesus. Needless to say, because all of Christianity is founded on that very concept— of the formless God, the Father, becoming incarnate in the concept in the person of Jesus. This concept of the incarnation of a formless God is a huge parallel between Hinduism and Christianity. And the more I've learned about Hinduism, the more Jesus seems like a Hindu guru to me. As I mentioned earlier, Hinduism has been passed down from generation to generation, from parent to child, from guru to disciple. And let's just take a, a look at that word, disciple. In the Old Testament, you don't read about disciples. The word disciple appears exactly once in the Old Testament, and it's a verse where God is referring to his own disciples. But in the New Testament, the word disciple appears over 250 times. When you begin reading the New Testament, you quickly find yourself in a world where there's disciples everywhere. You've got John the Baptist out in the wilderness recruiting disciples, and he's got a group of disciples following him around. And then later, Jesus starts his ministry, and he gathers a following of disciples. We go from the Old Testament times, where you have the concept of disciples being virtually non-existent, to all of a sudden in the New Testament, it's a common thing for a holy man to be followed around by groups of disciples. In other words, this whole disciple thing in the New Testament is new. You don't read about it in the, old, in the Old Testament. So where did it come from? 
But the parallels get even more specific. When a Hindu monk takes his monastic vows to begin his life of monasticism, the very first thing he does is he goes into the wilderness without purse or scrip, and he fasts and prays and communes with God, sometimes for several months. Similarly, when Jesus was baptized to begin his, his ministry, the very first thing he did was to go into the wilderness to commune with God for 40 days and 40 nights. He was doing what a Hindu monk would do. And it's worth mentioning that the New Testament doesn't mention Jesus or any of his apostles being married, which would be consistent with what you would expect from a monk. Another parallel between Hinduism and Christianity is the concept of vicarious atonement for sin. In the versions of Hinduism that believe in sin, it's believed that your guru takes your sins upon him. And traditionally, the way a disciple greets his guru is, is that the disciple kneels down and touches the guru's feet. And there are stories of famous gurus who suffered pain when their disciples touched their feet because the disciples' sins were being transferred to the guru. And some of these stories go so far as to say that the guru was eventually crippled from being touched on his feet by so many disciples and taking their sins upon him. So, needless to say, in Christianity... There is the same concept of vicarious atonement of sin, but rather than a Hindu guru taking your sins upon him, Jesus is believed to have taken your sins upon him. Hindus also have a spiritual practice of immersing themselves in water, particularly the sacred Ganges River, for spiritual purification. This is not an ordinance the way it is in Christianity. It doesn't signify becoming a Hindu the way baptism signifies becoming a Christian. But there is that parallel between Hinduism and Christianity, the idea that being immersed in water can bring about spiritual purification. Now let's talk about some parallels between Hinduism and Catholicism in particular. One of the big parallels that stands out to me is the striking similarity between the interior of Hindu temples and Catholic cathedrals. In Hindu temples, the focal point is a sanctum, a holy of holies, where the image of one or more gods is displayed. When Hindus come into a temple, they salute and kneel before the images and pray to them. And there's a low altar in front of the images where the Hindu priest performs worship ceremonies. Well, similarly, in a Catholic cathedral, the focal point typically consists of one or more images, for example, Jesus hanging on the cross or the Virgin Mary. And when people, when Catholics come into one of their cathedrals, they kneel or cross themselves to salute the images, and they then pray to the images. And there is an altar in front of the images where the priest conducts the Mass. Now, we all know that Judaism strongly condemns the worship of images, so the question arises, where did the Catholic Church get this practice? Another parallel between Hinduism and Catholicism is the worship of female deities or saints. In Hinduism, almost every male god has a female companion. In Hinduism, the gods typically come in male-female pairs. By contrast, in Judaism, it's a big no-no to pray to a female deity or saint. So, isn't it curious that Catholicism, a religion that grew out of Judaism, embraces the worship of the feminine divine? Where did the Catholic Church get this idea from, if not from Judaism? They, they could have gotten 
that from the ancient Greeks and Romans who likewise had female gods. So this parallel between Catholicism and Hinduism doesn't necessarily prove that Hinduism influenced Catholicism, but I do think it's an interesting parallel nonetheless. Another parallel between Hinduism and Catholicism is monasticism, uh, having orders of monks and nuns. Judaism doesn't have monastic orders. Uh, Judaism doesn't have monks and nuns. Hindus do. So if Catholicism didn't get the concept of monastic orders from Judaism, where did they get it from? I don't know enough about ancient Greek and Roman religion to know whether they had monastic orders. If they did, it seems that would be the most likely uh, source of influence on Catholicism. But this is, you know, it's just interesting to me to note yet another way in which Catholicism has more in common with Hinduism than it does with Judaism. Another parallel between Hinduism and Catholicism is the use of holy water in rituals. In Hindu rituals, it's very common for the priest to sprinkle holy water from the sacred Ganges River on the ground or on the instruments of worship or on the worshippers or on himself. And the Catholics, you know, I think it's common knowledge, likewise have a practice of uh, sprinkling holy water as part of their worship and ceremonies. And I, I can't remember anything like that from the Old Testament. If you want, if someone wants to correct me, um, you know, comment on the Infants on Thrones website, I'd, I'd be happy to be corrected on that. Another parallel between Hinduism and Catholicism is the use of rosary beads. It's very common for Hindus to use a string of beads when they meditate. Every time they recite their mantra as they meditate, they pass a bead between their fingers. And similarly... Catholics have strings of beads that they use to count their prayers when they're praying Our Fathers or Hail Marys. So these types of parallels make me wonder, did Hinduism influence Christianity and Catholicism in particular? Is Christianity and Catholicism a combination of Jewish and Hindu theology and spiritual practice? If anyone has studied this question, I'd be very interested to get your feedback. So let's talk about some of the major differences between the major Western religions, you know, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and Hinduism. One thing the Western religions all have in common is the idea that time is linear, that there was a beginning of the world, then lots of stuff happens for a few thousand years, and then there's an end of the world, and then we all eventually end up spending eternity somewhere, and hopefully it's a nice place. By contrast, in Hinduism, Time is not linear. It's cyclical. Hindus, they believe that the universe, which is Brahman, undergoes an infinite number of expansions and contractions. Scientists today tell us that before the Big Bang, the entire universe was contained in a single point smaller than an electron. It was in a maximally contracted state. Then came the Big Bang, and the universe has been expanding ever since. According to Hindu cosmology, the universe will eventually pull itself back together again and then explode and expand again and then eventually contract again and then explode again and expand. And it will go through that cycle of expansion and contraction an infinite number of times. So time is not linear in Hindu cosmology. It is cyclical. Another major difference between the Western religions and Hinduism is that in the Western religions, God and humans are separate. In Judaism, main Christianity, and Islam, 
God is formless, and human beings have bodies, so human beings are very different from God. By contrast, Hinduism does not have this same emphasis on the separateness of God and humankind. To the contrary, one of the most essential teachings of Hinduism, as we've discussed, is that our true eternal identity is Brahman, God, that we are all temporary material forms of the formless Brahman. Another point of contrast between the Western religions and Hinduism involves the way they treat gender. And here, Hinduism gets mixed reviews. On the one hand, Indian culture has traditionally been just as patriarchal as Western cultures. Until relatively recently, only men could become priests and officiate in temples. There are now some more reformed modern sects of Hinduism that allow women to become priests, though. But it's very interesting to see how gender is treated in Hindu scripture and in the Hindu epics. In, in Hindu scripture and the Hindu epics, gender is not fixed. It can be very fluid. And that makes sense because in Hinduism, your true eternal identity, uh, you know, the Atman or Brahman, does not have a gender. In the Mahabharata, which is an ancient Indian epic poem longer than Homer's Iliad and Odyssey combined, there are several instances where men become women and vice versa. And one instance in particular stands out because it involves the god Krishna. Toward the end of the Mahabharata, there's an epic battle between two feuding families. It drags on and on, and at one point, the god Krishna, who has taken the side of one of the families, suggests that to win the battle, they must perform an extra special sacrifice, a human sacrifice. So a young man volunteers to be sacrificed, but he asks for one wish before being sacrificed. He asks to be allowed to marry so that he can enjoy having sex with a woman the night before he is sacrificed. Well, Krishna feels obligated to grant the young man his wish. I mean, after all, he's just, you know, volunteered to be sacrificed. But there's just one problem. They're in an army camp near a battlefield, and there aren't any women around. So the god Krishna decides to turn himself into a beautiful woman. Krishna is male. So Krishna turns himself into a beautiful woman, marries the young man who volunteered to be sacrificed, and spends the night making love to him. Now that's a full-service god. So the next day, the young man is sacrificed, and true to Krishna's prediction, they finally win the battle. So the moral of the story, I guess, is if you ever find yourself stalemated on the battlefield in an epic family feud, maybe the solution is a little divine gender-bending to prepare a human sacrifice. Another big difference between Western religions and Hinduism is the way they regard homosexuality. There are verses in Jewish, Christian, and Muslim scripture that condemn homosexuality, but Hindu scripture does not. In fact, there's actually a line in the Rig Veda, that oldest book of Hindu scripture, and it says, quote, "...diversity is what nature is all about. What seems unnatural is also natural." Some Hindu scholars have interpreted this as referring to homosexuality, among other things. It's just part of the diversity of nature. What seems unnatural is also natural. There are also many temples in India with stone carvings that depict sex acts between members of the opposite sex and members of the same sex. And the Kama Sutra, the famous ancient Indian book of uh, lovemaking, it includes homosexual acts. 
So, although Hindu scripture does not condemn homosexuality, because Indian culture has historically been patriarchal and also has also placed a very heavy emphasis on having and raising children, there are some interpretations of Hinduism that have condemned homosexuality, notwithstanding the lack of condemnation in Hindu scripture. But on the whole, Hinduism has been much more tolerant and accepting of homosexuality than the Western religions. So now that we've discussed the basics of Hindu spiritual philosophy and practice, and you know we've done the compare and contrast with the Western religions, I thought I'd do a little grab bag segment where I answer some questions that I think some listeners may still have. So I'm going to do that by answering some fake listener questions. So here it goes. Fake listener question number one asks, Hey Drew, what does Om mean? There's this stereotype of Hindus meditating and saying, Om, Om. What's up with that? Uh, that's a great question, uh, great question, fake listener number one. The word Om is so old that its origin is still shrouded in the mist of ancient history. It has come to be considered the sacred syllable or first syllable. Notice that you don't have to use your tongue or teeth to say Om. It's one of the easiest, most natural sounds for the human mouth to make. Om has also come to be known as another name for Brahman. And chanting the name of God, uh, Om being one of them, is considered a form of prayer. We've also talked about how Brahman is the cosmic energy field from which everything in the universe has come into existence. So one theory is that Om represents the humming sound of the energy of the universe. Om. Okay, so next question. Fake listener number two writes, Hey Drew, long time listener, first time emailer. So I've been listening to your episode while you've been recording it, and I've noticed that you haven't mentioned anything about yoga, you know, all the poses and stretches. So do you even actually know anything about Hinduism? This egregious omission has left me skeptical. So, yeah, when we in the West hear the word yoga, we typically think of a system of stretches and poses and, of course, also one of the greatest gifts it has brought to mankind, yoga pants. Yoga is actually much more than a set of stretches and poses, though. It's one of the major schools or sects within Hinduism. It's basically an entire religious system, and the stretches and poses are just one of many different spiritual practices that yogis engage in. Um, as I mentioned earlier, yoga comes from the Sanskrit word yug, which means unite. So yoga means something like union, uniting mind and body, uniting spirit and body, uniting the Atman and Brahman. To really go into yoga, um, you know, the, the, the school, I, I'd, I'd really have to do a whole other episode. So for those of you who are really curious, I recommend that, you know, Google's your friend. So just start, uh, you know, taking a look at the Wikipedia and on entry on yoga, which I took a look at, and it's actually very good. Okay, next question. So fake listener number three writes, Hey, Drew, what's up with the Hare Krishnas? Are they legit Hindus or are they just a bunch of white dudes who like to bang on drums and tambourines? Okay, great question. Um, so, yeah, the Hare Krishnas, they are members of an organization that's called the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. And it's an organization that was founded by a Swami from India. Uh, he founded it in New York in 1966. 
And it claims to be something like a restoration of an older school of Hinduism. Um, so, you know, they kind of bristle at the suggestion that they're newcomers. Um, let's talk about what Hare Krishna means. Hare means praise. And Krishna, as I've mentioned earlier, is, is one of the gods mentioned in Hindu scriptures. So Hare Krishna means praise Krishna. Um, remember the four main spiritual paths we talked about? Well, Hare Krishna's fall very squarely within the bhakti path, that path of love, devotion, and worship. They believe that the most effective path for achieving self-realization is through the praise and worship of Krishna. Um, a little story here. There's a Hare Krishna temple about 20 miles from my home that I visited one Sunday. And the service was three hours long. So Mormons aren't the only ones unfortunate to have a, a three-hour block. Uh, the first hour of the service consisted of sitting on the ground and chanting the Hare Krishna mantra. And although this was like five years ago when I visited, I can still remember the Hare Krishna mantra word for word. It goes uh, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And what that means is praise Krishna, praise Krishna, 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 praise, praise, then praise Rama. And by the way, Rama is another word for another name for Krishna, because both Rama and Krishna are believed to be incarnations of the god Vishnu, who is an incarnation of Brahman. So uh, praise Rama, praise Rama, 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 praise, praise. So we chanted that uh, seated on the floor for the entire first hour. Then the second hour was something like Sunday school, where the head Swami gave a lecture. Um, I believe it was on a portion of the Bhagavad Gita. And then the third hour was a full hour of dancing and banging on drums and shaking tambourines, uh, really rocking out, while everybody sang the same Hare Krishna mantra that we had recited during the first hour. To be completely honest with you, I did not come away very impressed or interested in the Hare Krishnas, but I will tell you that the samosas that they served afterwards were the bomb. Okay, next question. Fake listener number four writes, Hey Drew, what's up with the red dot that a lot of Hindus put on their forehead? Okay, so the red dot is called a bindi, and the practice of, a little fun fact there, remember the uh, crocodile hunter, you know, the Australian guy who uh, got killed with a stingray barb to the heart? Uh, he, he named his daughter Bindi, so he might have been a secret Hindu. Uh, yeah, so the practice of putting a red dot on the forehead goes so far back that nobody is exactly sure when, where, or why it started. But there has kind of coalesced more of a less, more or less of a conventional understanding of what that means. The red dot on the forehead is thought to signify the third eye or your spiritual eye. Now, this made no sense to me until I had an experience a couple years ago that gave me a hunch about why they believe we have a spiritual eye in the middle of our forehead. So a couple years ago, I was meditating at a Hindu monastery and at the time, I was trying to lengthen my meditation sessions to a full hour, which was something I hadn't done before. Well, about 45 minutes into my session, it felt like someone was pressing their fingertip against the center of my forehead. 
And it was so distinct that I actually opened my eyes to see if anyone was there, even though I already knew that I was alone in the meditation sanctuary. But because the sensation in my forehead was so unmistakable, I, it caused me to actually open my eyes just, you know, to double check and see if someone was standing there touching me. And sure enough, nobody was there and I was still all alone. So I closed my eyes and continued meditating, and the sensation in the center of my forehead, it started to change. The feeling of pressure changed to more of a sensation of tingling, and as I continued meditating, it felt like, I don't know, like energy was gathering in the center of my forehead, and there was a very distinct tingling sensation that remained there for several minutes. Well... Needless to say, that was a very weird, unexpected experience. So when I got home, I googled something like meditation tingling in forehead. And sure enough, it's a thing that meditators experience. Um, scientists have discovered that meditation actually stimulates the prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain that's right behind your forehead. So I figured that the sensation I had experienced, that tingling in the center of my forehead, was just my prefrontal cortex being stimulated by the meditation I was doing. And I've experienced this uh, several times since then. I don't always experience it when I meditate, um, but sometimes I do, particularly on days when you know I'm really focused. Um, and, and since then, I've also experienced that tingling sensation in the center of my forehead a few times when I'm not meditating, but when I'm, you know, really intently concentrating on something like when I'm like super focused reading something. And I've talked to a few friends who also are, are big into meditation, and they've told me that they've experienced that too, that tingling in the center of the forehead, you know, both while meditating or while intensely concentrating on something like reading. So I know that this is nothing unique. It's it's just something that anyone who practices meditation can experience. But after having this experience, it, it gave me a hunch, um, you know, about this, you know, why the Hindus thought that there was a spiritual eye in the center of the forehead. And my hunch is that this phenomenon, this stimulation of the prefrontal cortex during meditation, that tingling sensation that it gives you on the center of your forehead, that that's what caused the ancient Hindus to believe that we must have some like spiritual eye or third eye in the center of our forehead, of, of our forehead which then resulted in the practice of, of marking the center of the forehead with a red dot to represent the spiritual eye. But this is all just my guess. Well, Infants on Thrones listeners, I really hope that you have enjoyed this episode and found it interesting. And I hope that if this episode has accomplished anything for you, I hope that it's sparked an interest in learning more about India and its rich religious and cultural heritage. You know, India is the birthplace of four major living religions, Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, and Sikhism. And we've just discussed, you know, mainly one of the major schools in one of those religions today. There's no other country on earth that has given birth to more living religions than India. So, you know, if nothing else, I hope this episode has piqued your interest and made you want to learn more about the country that will soon become the most populous country in the world. And uh, I will be monitoring the Infants on Thrones website for any comments that come in on this. So if people want, have questions, you know, things I didn't address in this episode or, you know, if they want clarification or anything like that, they can ask me questions and I'll do my best to answer those promptly. So uh, 
you know, hope to get a good little discussion on the website. And uh, until then, namaste. Hello, brothers and sisters. This is Elder E. Eldon Elderman of the Seventh Quorum of the Seventy. When I'm not interviewing children about their masturbation practices, I monitor the Infants on Thrones podcast for the Strengthening the Members Committee. If you really like what you hear, you can jeopardize your eternal salvation by giving the quorum a five-star rating and writing a short review on iTunes. I didn't, but that's because I want to be resurrected with my genitalia intact. Anyone for the closing prayer? episode of Infants on Thrones, H7. Shh! Hit! Oh yes, and I rather enjoyed it. R2. Miss, if only there was a way to listen to Infants episodes earlier, and to gain access to interactive bonus content like video blog posts and other things. H9. Hit! Well, you could always join the Infants Patreon page. A1? You just convinced me to sign up for Patreon. And also... You sang my battleship. A game you can play anywhere. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast and the effort that goes into creating it, please come support us on Patreon, where for as little as $1 per episode, capped at any amount of your choosing, you will have access to nearly 100 Patreon-only sharing time episodes that have not been released to the general public, or if you would prefer to express your gratitude with a one-time donation via Venmo or PayPal, check out the donate link on the website infantsonthrones.com. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.